Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Tonight, the government's ambitious plan to clean up our waterways. Farmers say they can't afford it. Environmentalists say we can't afford not to. So who's right? Then, another difficult debate as David Seymour's voluntary euthanasia bill works its way through Parliament. A visiting Dutch ethicist tells us why he no longer supports his country's euthanasia laws. Once a generation has become accustomed to the idea of an organised death, new generations will come and say, why, why is it that it is only limited to those people who are terminally ill? We have the first look at a new book comparing 80 years of election campaigns. We'll tell you how many promises our politicians actually keep. That was one of the most surprising things for me, was how many promises were repeated, election after election after election. And speaking of promises, Megan Woods is here on the Kiwi Build reset. No more targets, but does that mean no more accountability? Why should anyone believe Labor's big promises heading into the next election? Look, Jack, I think fundamentally people want their politicians to be honest. But first tonight, the Labor Party is under pressure after new details of sexual assault allegations against a Labor parliamentary staffer were revealed. The spin-off website spoke to a young woman, a party volunteer, who claims she was sexually assaulted by the staffer. She feels let down by the way the party handled her complaint. It's not the first time the party has been accused of mishandling sexual assault allegations. Here's what Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had to say when she was asked about the allegations late this afternoon. The person that's uh, alleged uh, or referenced in the article um, uh, has not been on the precinct um, uh, since the uh, day after these issues arose, so I believe for roughly five weeks now, um, and will not be on the precinct, at least for the uh, duration of the inquiry that's being undertaken uh, by a QC appointed by uh, the Labour Party. Um, on your first question, uh, I want to make it very clear that I am deeply concerned and incredibly frustrated um, by uh, the process that is being undertaken by the Labour Party, um, but also obviously by the nature of the allegations. Uh, I was informed in the very beginning that the allegations made were not sexual in nature. That is obviously directly counter to what is now being reported. Uh, a month ago, I visited New Zealand Council, very, uh, very um, uh, seriously shared my view that they were not the appropriate place to undertake inquiries uh, around concerning behaviour of members of the Labour Party, but particularly they are not the appropriate place to ever undertake an investigation uh, into a sexual assault, and that would be their view too. Uh, as of the 10th of August, um, from that meeting, decisions were taken to appoint a QC, uh, and that is now where this process sits. But as I say, I'm incredibly uh, frustrated and deeply disappointed by the way that this has been handled. So, a QC has been appointed, the alleged attacker has not been stood down, but the Prime Minister says he hasn't been on parliamentary premises and won't be until the QC has completed the inquiry. Jacinda Ardern also pointed out there has not as yet been a complaint to police. Q&A understands that within the party there are conflicting views on what occurred and the Prime Minister is relying on the QC's inquiry for a definitive answer. Officially, though, Labor is staying quiet on this for the time being. We have tried to get senior members, including Jacinda Ardern and party president Nigel Harworth, to front up and answer our questions. But they won't be interviewed tonight. 
Moving on, the government's plan to clean up our waterways is facing a massive backlash from some in our rural communities. The plan would put major restrictions on farm intensification and water standards and seek to markedly improve our waterways within five years. The issue is open for submissions, but we want to unpack the ramifications a bit more. Joining us from Christchurch tonight, Chris Allen, the Federated Farmers Environment and Water Spokesperson, and in New Plymouth, Marnie Prickett from the environmental group Choose Clean Water New Zealand. Tina Kordua, thanks for joining us on Q&A. Chris, I'll begin with you. Hi there, Jack. What will be the impact of the government's proposals? Kia ora, Jack. Um, we, we had a look at the, the document. We had a two and a half hour sort of heads up of it. So we put a press release out and we found through lots of pages. Now, we're talking quite a substantial amount of paperwork here. There's quite a bit of reading. And there's a lot of stuff that we can work with and we can think, massage some words here and there and we can make this thing workable. Workable for farmers, workable for the government, workable for our communities. So we looked at another issue that the government had flagged and that was about having a, a new national bottom line. Not an old one that's modified, a completely new one. And looked at the ramifications of that. And I'm from an area where we've got a community that's going through um, a whole, pro they've been through a whole process mm -hmm. and they're going to try and make a 30% reduction in their end loss and that, they're really passionate about what can they do and how can they get there. But this document actually signalled and said, we're going to try and, if we put this new bottom line in, in some parts of the country, it's going to be an 80% reduction. So we put our, our, our practical hat on and thought, mm. holy hell, what does this actually mean? And we just want to signal to the government straight away, this is a big issue and we want all our communities to come out and have a big part of that discussion. Because even now we've delved in more into the paperwork, mm. even the Cabinet actually have got some concerns okay. about it. So you've, you've had some time to consider the document. Marnie, I'll come to you in just a moment. But, but just going back to that first question, what would be the impact if the strictest suggestions that the government has put in this policy document come into fruition and, and uh, come into law, what would be the impact on New Zealand farmers and rural communities? Look, we, it'll be just a massive change that's required and okay, sure that it's an open-ended to get to, get to a certain outcome, but that would mean basically taking away large amounts of sheep and beef farming off the Canterbury Plains, mm. it'll be just about a lot of dairy farming would have to go. Now if that is what the community wants, you've got, we've, I've got to think about the community of Ashburton or whether it be Matamata mm. or where are the, other uh, Matara and saying, holy hell, yeah, what can we do to get there? Because we've got to all go on this journey. And it's not that we don't want to go to the same place. We're just saying, is, is that particular bottom line going to get us to where we all want to go what to? What you're saying is that if that bottom line comes into law, there are some parts of the country where pastoral farming may no longer be viable. Pastoral farming, vegetables, there's so many things that are required with the, the nutrients that we need. And mm. look, any farm that loses nutrients is not a good idea. And right. we've got to have all the tools to keep that on the land. OK, I'll go to Marnie now. Marnie, what do you think of the proposals? Do they go far enough? Well, I th I've said before that I think that these proposals are really promising and, th and that they've actually got the opportunity here to deliver on the election promises that uh, Labor particularly cam campaigned on. Mm. They talked about swimmable rivers and healthy rivers within a generation. And more recently we've heard the government say that they want to see material, material noticeable changes in water quality over the next five years. And those goals are very consistent with what um, New Zealand as a whole want. We know that this is a big issue and we talked you know, there was a little um, 
moment earlier where we talked about uh, promises made at election mm. time and delivering on them. We've got an opportunity here um, to actually see those promises uh, be, be delivered. There's a little bit of a risk here, though, and, and I think um, it depends where this policy lands. And I want to... I want to um, highlight that there are a number of options in this policy around how to um, target particularly that high nitrogen loss um, from particularly high polluting intensive mm. dairy farms. I think that the, um, the, the options, if it lands on the strong options in the policy, it can do that. It can actually, it can actually start to turn around our um, freshwater trend, which has been a declining trend over the last couple of decades, and set us on that path to um, improving water quality and cleaning up the rivers as, as New Zealanders want. Mm. But there are a number of weak options in this policy too. So I want to see, um, I want to see from, I want to hear from the agricultural leaders which policies they're actually talking about that they're worried about. And, and I think that the stronger options are where we need to land here. So I, I'd, like to, I'd like the government to resist the pressure from those who want to protect agricultural polluters, um, those really high nitrogen mm. leaches, um, and I'd like them to resist that pressure and actually listen to what the New Zealand public wants, and that is to see healthier, cleaner, protected waterways. Chris, do you accept that pastoral farming intensification is responsible for the degradation of rural waterways? I'll accept that there's been quite an impact from some of our farming activities and some of our rural waterways. But some of our waterways, or many of our waterways, are actually pristine. And they actually meet all the standards we want. Well, hang, but we do, where, where we do, do those, have some hot Where do you get those though? numbers from? In what way are they pristine? When the nitrate levels are exceptionally low, they've got low sediment, they've got everything. Mm. You look um, at well, hang on, hang on, just, I'm just, I'm just, because I've, I've, I've got numbers here that, are, you know, we've researched this pretty thoroughly. It's interesting to consider Australia and New Zealand's guidelines for fresh water, which are not legally, guide, uh, legally binding mm. guidelines, but they broadly indicate healthy water standards. In pastoral areas, 86% of New Zealand rivers exceed those guidelines for nitrogen standards and 90% for phosphorus. So where are these swimmable, pristine rivers? Environment Aotearoa talks about where our swimming sites are, and that's where a lot of where the water testing's done. Mm. We look at some of the main rivers going through, Ashby, um, through Canterbury. They are pristine rivers and with, with their water quality. We've got our lowland streams, which are the ones that are most vulnerable, right down near the coast, and that is at the bottom where a lot of the agricultural activity is. But the ones that are coming out of the mountains are exceptionally good. We've got some that are hot spots and we've got to target our actions. We're right into good management practices. We've been working but, on but this for 10 But they're not good enough, years. though, is it? I mean, I mean, you would say if you objectively looked at New Zealand's water standards at the moment, they, they are not consistent with our clean and green image. Marnie, what do you think of that? Yeah, look, and I and I agree with Chris that there are we've still got some really beautiful parts of our waterways in New Zealand. Mm. There's no doubt about that. But we have we've intensified beyond the capacity of the land and the water to be able to cope, cope and we're actually damaging our environment. And Chris is right when he says that a lot of our lowland streams mm. are um, impacted. And, and Jack, you're right when you say that our pastoral um, our pastoral rivers and streams are impacted as well, as well as our. There's no doubt that the that the urban environment has been. Impacted. Impacted. But the fact that 40, almost 46% of our um, waterways run through our pastoral uh, land means that we have to address what's happening on farm. We have to yeah. uh, rein in the particularly intense and high polluting operations and there's a number of mechanisms in this policy to do that, so, although it's, as I say it's important we land on the strong ones. So Marnie, what about and those economic concerns? 
sorry to interrupt. What, what about those economic concerns? Because clearly this is this is very concerning for farmers, especially mm -hmm. in the area of the country that Chris, uh, where Chris farms in, in mid Canterbury. Do you accept that some farms in New Zealand will no longer be viable if indeed the toughest regulations come into law? I think that we, if we look back in the Canterbury Plains 20 years ago and we see what kind of industries we had down in the Canterbury Plains then, mm. it was looking very different than it's looking now. Change is a constant in our primary industries um, and it will be a constant into the future and we're heading into a future of, of more change, particularly um, due to climate change and the fact that, uh, and, uh, that our environment is disrupted. Mm. So we, we are having to change and we are having to adapt. So what do you say and to those so farmers who are worried about their livelihoods? I would say that there's support there for them to, to change and to transition. I know that the government's put some money towards uh, towards a sustainable transition fund there. And I would actually call on farmers to turn back to their leadership to say, listen, particularly dairy industry leaders, you guys, you guys encouraged us to intensify in the wrong places. We're talking a lot about Canterbury tonight. And Canterbury, 20 years ago, people said it's not a good idea to intensify dairy, um, dairy farms, particularly on Canterbury Plains. It's going to cause a lot of pollution and a lot of trouble um, for our waterways. And that, uh, and that was encouraged anyway. Dairy leadership really pushed for the intensification um, down there in the Canterbury region. And so I'd like to see, uh, I'd like to, to you know, I'd, I'd say to those farmers, turn back to your leadership. They, they encouraged you down this path and, it's, and they need to be responsible now and help you transition out of it. And mm. so we're talking about having to, um, we're basically yeah. talking about having to backtrack. So right. we've done so much damage, particularly in Canterbury, that we, that we actually have to, you know, we really have to, you don't, do, you don't keep doing the wrong thing in the wrong place Chris, just because it's hard to change. I'll we, give you the we last have to take word. responsibility. Okay, thank you, Marnie. Chris, I'll give you the last word. What, what's your response to that? Well, as leadership, the, the whole board of Federated Farmers, we're absolute leaders in our own, own right because we're actually passionate about the environment, all of us. And look, I can't sell my goods on the on the open market, whether it be to the Europe or China or whatever. They want to know that they can trust me and the and the food that what we're producing. We've got a good environmental integrity, and we're involved in the good farming practices all right from the beginning. The, the water quality is, when it came to the national policy statement, has been going for about eight years. Some of these things take time to work. Mm. Farmers are on board that with this. It's time to give some of the stuff a, a bit of time to net, settle in. But we're all on the same journey. We all want exactly the same things and how we get there and over what period of time. But all those options, they've got mm. to be achievable. Give us okay. the time frame, give us the tools, and we'll all get there. But all we're right. on this journey, and we started it about 10 years ago. All right, submissions are open now. Thank you for your time this evening. Chris Allen from Federated Farmers and Marnie Prickett from Choose Clean Water New Zealand. Tēnā kōrua. Coming up. I interviewed the Dutch ethicist who once served on a euthanasia oversight committee and has now changed his mind. And another change of mind. Those big Kiwi build targets are officially gone. Plus, a little later, a chance to look at some election campaign classics. Mr Muldoon, would you explain the new industrial law? Now there's an election pitch, Mr Peters. A new book on 80 years of political campaigns and the promises they failed to keep. Hawke mai anō. Euthanasia has been legal in the Netherlands since 2002, and though it wasn't the first country in the world to legalise the practice, it's the one that many consider the capital for assisted dying. 
Dr Theo Bohr was once a supporter of the law and served on a Dutch euthanasia oversight committee. But as time went on, he had a change of heart. He's arrived in Aotearoa today, his trip paid for by the Care Alliance, a group that's lobbying against ACT leader David Seymour's end-of-life choice bill. I asked Dr Boer why he supported the Netherlands law when it was first introduced. Well, as a Democrat, I think you have to respect if there's a great uh, support for a certain law. So uh, in our country, uh, there was a support of about 80% for this law. And, um, uh, and I was asked to join a committee, a uh, review committee, that uh, reviews euthanasia cases after they have been conducted. Um, I joined the committee and I actually have had the impression that it was a good system, it was uh, reliable and it kept the numbers down on, a, on an acceptable level. So you were effectively an ethicist on a review committee. You would go back and look at euthanasia cases yes. and consider whether or not they had been conducted ethically as per the law. Yes. So what has changed for you in your support for this law? Well, when I entered the committee in 2005, the, the numbers had been stable for a couple of years and, and also the reasons why people wanted euthanasia had been uh, stable. When I entered a couple of years later, for some reason, we don't know why exactly, the numbers started going up by about 15% every year. And not only that, uh, the, the reasons why people wanted to have euthanasia expanded rather dramatically from, from uh, uh, terminal illness towards psychiatry, uh, towards people with dementia. Uh, people mm. with chronic illnesses and the numbers also they went they tripled they went from 2000 to 6500 so that that gave me some some feelings of discomfort I, I've looked at the latest numbers I note that the numbers at least appear to have plateaued as you say mm. there was a sharp increase but uh, in the first nine months of 2018 the number of euthanasia cases in the Netherlands was down 9% compared to the same period in 2017. Yeah, so the newest numbers are, are up again. The, the, the chairman of the, of the committee has said that in 2019 the, the upward trend has mm. been resumed again. But is that not simply a case of people being more familiar with how the law works and perhaps yes. more comfortable with the idea of euthanasia. And well, is that, that a bad thing? Yeah, that is absolutely true. I think people are more comfortable with the whole idea of euthanasia. So in a, in a certain sense, and I, I do see the value of that, in a certain sense it's, it's a liberal law. And as a liberal, I do respect that. However, what, I, what you can see too is that uh, there becomes a certain norm, you, say, you mm. see. Um, I, I think there's a right of every person to decide to die. But there, I don't know whether there is a, an obligation or a, a norm from the, from the government to make sure that this person can die. I think that is an involvement in the state, uh, from the side of the mm. state, that maybe symbolizes uh, that euthanasia is a commendable thing and I think that is where I become a little bit uh, uneasy. You think where the state approves something in a legal sense it normalizes it. Well, yes, and where, where society in a whole. I was called right. by, by a lady just a couple of days ago, and she said that she has, an, uh, she has a chronic disease, and this, uh, the uh, insurance company will no longer pay for her mm. medication. And she called the insurance company and said, 
Well, um, that means that I will slowly uh, be deteriorate and die. And on two occasions, this, uh, this insurance company has said, well, then, we have euthanasia, haven't we? Uh, and that is uh, that's a very, uh, very mm. uneasy thing to see. So, well, well, let's let's compare your experiences in the Netherlands mm. with a New Zealand context, because I know you have submitted to the Justice Select Committee. What are your concerns with New Zealand's law? Um, I think the law is better than the Dutch law in 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 the sense that it does say that a patient should have a terminal disease. However, uh, I think that um, once and we've seen that in the Netherlands too, the once a generation has become accustomed mm. to the idea of an organized death, new generations will come and say, why why is it that it is only limited to those people who are terminally mm. ill? Um, and I have to say from my own experience, because I got a lot, lot of phone calls and, and emails and tweets from people who, who mm. have a terrible life, I know that their suffering can even be worse mm. than the suffering of, of terminally ill people. There are probably some important distinctions, though. You say you are concerned about the things that people are referencing when they ask for euthanasia in the Netherlands. And it's a really important distinction, is it not, that in New Zealand you have to be suffering a terminal illness mm -hmm. likely to end your life within six months. Now, yeah. when the Netherlands law was introduced, there was never no. that allowance. There that was never true. the terminal illness allowance. That is a very important thing to, to mention. But what, what, what was the context of acceptance, what I always say, the context of acceptance was, in fact, a terminally ill patient just days or weeks before mm -hmm. a natural de death would incur. But, but is, it not, is it not disingenuous to compare a law in the Netherlands that allows people who are suffering from mental illness, for example, mm -hmm. or who are in the early stages of dementia, for example, to go through the euthanasia process? Is it not disingenuous to compare that law with a law in New Zealand that explicitly says the only people who qualify must be suffering from a terminal illness mm -hmm. likely to end their life within six months? Well, yes, but the one thing, of course, is that when you have a, a, a life expectation of, of half a year, um, that doesn't mean that you're going to die very soon. In, in fact, doctors, of, of course, may, may be wrong. I, my, my wife had a, a grandmother who was terminally ill several times, and we would get uh, five or six weeks after that, we would get a postcard from friends mm -hmm. and say, greetings from grandma. It is very, very hard to predict. Um, so that means, in uh fact, that even your law isn't precise about who, who may die. But, Half but a year I'm, is very I'm, vague. I'm already in New Zealand, we have had mm -hmm. uh, a lengthy and robust debate on the subject. I know Oregon introduced euthanasia laws in 1997 and no changes have been made since 1997. So the slippery slope hasn't applied there. Western Australia's Parliament Joint Select Committee uh, considered the slippery slope um, in, in the Netherlands and says um, it's incorrect to describe the availability of euthanasia for mentally unwell persons in the Netherlands as eventuating as a slippery slope through which an initially conservative approach was eroded over time. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me though that you think by allowing for this law really we have an ethical obligation to allow for more people to apply for euthanasia? No, I don't think we have that now, but I think uh, that, that if you look at, for example, Canada, the, the, mm. the question, the, the, the request has come to liberalise this law, and uh, I think it's made for good reasons. I don't think it should be legalised uh, for, for a bigger group, but I think there's a real mm. risk that the coming generation will say, why do you limit this to terminal people? 
if we get to that point, is it not reasonable to accept there would be an ongoing conversation mm -hmm. and an ongoing debate? Well, yes. It's not the sort of thing that's going to be passed legally overnight. No, no, it's an ongoing, mm. uh, 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 it's an ongoing debate. What, what, what I think, however, mm. is that the whole fact that, that where you are now, and I think maybe you should look at the Netherlands and see where this may be where you will be in 20 years mm. from now. What I see is that a euthanasia law may do something to the whole fabric of a society, just like flying, I just came in from Amsterdam, just like flying has changed the whole way we considered the world, the whole way we consider mm. tourism. So has the availability of euthanasia changed the whole way we see dying and suffering. Mm. What then is your message to New Zealand? Um, my message would be, um, uh, when I was on the plane, there was a, a man who said to me, I am very much in favour of this bill, because he said my, they have given my, my father antibiotics over and over again. And I think we should first consider why are people considering to have euthanasia. And one of the reasons is over-treatment. We shouldn't treat on and on. Mm. We should allow people to die a natural way. We should focus on the quality of life rather than a length of someone's life. Yes, yes. Dr. Teo Bohr. Watching that interview, Act Leader David Seymour. Tenakwe, welcome Tenakwe. to Q&A. Now, just for the record, Mr. Bohr indicated to us he was willing to appear here live mm. to speak and debate with you, but you weren't prepared to do that. Why is that? Oh, Jack, I've debated um, just about everyone and anyone up and down the country, literally from Kerry Kerry to Gore, um, in Parliament, out of Parliament, on TV. Um, but I wasn't prepared to come on and go head to head with a guy who purports to represent the views of the Netherlands when in actual fact um, public opinion in the Netherlands after 20 years of the law nearly is 88% in favour um, when the Royal Dutch Medical Association uh, is heavily in favour of assisted dying laws uh, after their experience mm. of it. Uh, so I'm happy to come on and answer any points that he's raised, but I didn't want to go head to head with him today. But let's talk about the, the points he raised. The number of people dying in the Netherlands mm. by assisted suicide and euthanasia mm. has been increasing. You don't contest that? Oh, no, I mean, the statistics are very clear. So, so why is that? Why are the numbers going up? Well, I think it's natural that when something's new, not a lot of people are familiar with it. Um, maybe the systems are in place, the medical profession aren't there prepared to, to offer it. Um, but eventually that does start to happen and more people take advantage of the law. Um, but as you pointed out, um, you know, it has actually started to level off in the last year or so. But there's an important point that the Dr Vaughan raises there, isn't there? He says, effectively, that is... Uh, indicative of a normalisation mm. of euthanasia or assisted dying, a normalisation that actually we don't necessarily want. Well, I think what you've got to look at the numbers in the Netherlands is that for every 25 people uh, who die in the Netherlands, 24 of them uh, die without any kind of assisted dying. So the idea that, that when one in 25 people do something that's normal, uh, I think is, is not quite right. What about, what about the slippery slope argument that, that essentially by allowing people in New Zealand to die or, or, or to go through a, a process where they, they apply to um, die by assisted suicide, if they are within six months of the end of their life, they have a terminal illness, it's, un, uh, it's insufferable. If we allow that, then in years to come, how can we say that we won't allow for other people, perhaps people who have... You know, a, a, a longer life expectancy or, or a suffering mm. mental health issues. Mm. 
I guess it's always really difficult to argue against people who say, well, I'm not going to argue about what's on the table today, um, but I want to argue about some hypothetical other situation. Um, now, I think what's important is to look at the countries that have had these laws. And as, as you said in the earlier interview, um, you know, Oregon's had the same law since 1998, I think it was. Um, you know, the Netherlands um, have had the same law uh, since 2001, uh, not 2002, uh, and they haven't changed it. Uh, the Western Australians, as you mentioned, have looked into this in great detail, uh, and actually there's not an evidential basis to say if we pass this law we'll end up with a different law. Uh, the countries that have passed assisted dying laws uh, over 20 years have exactly mm. the same law. Can you foresee that though? Mm. From, from a philosophical perspective, mm. can you foresee that change? If, mm. if indeed your law passes through mm. and is normalised mm. to a certain degree, at least mm. in a legal framework mm. in New Zealand, can you see yeah. generations to come saying, you know what, we actually want to increase the access to this? Yeah. Well, you could see them going either way, couldn't you? I mean, you could speculate endlessly. But what I would say is that you know we've had a very robust debate here in New Zealand. Really, it started um, most recently. I mean, actually, it goes back to 1995 mm -hmm. with the Michael Laws Bill. Um, but it started most recently with the Lucretia Seals case in 2015. Uh, as I say, I've been up and down the country debating this. It's had the longest parliamentary process of any bill in Parliament I can think of. Mm. And after all of that debate, we've come to a pretty settled place where Parliament uh, and the public uh, seem at this point, and there's still some legislating to go, uh, to be happy with a bill that is for people who are suffering at the end of their life, people who are terminal. Uh, and what people are saying is, you know, if I'm suffering, and there's no way that palliative care can help me, which is a reality for some people, mm. uh, then it's my life and it should be my choice. And I think a compassionate society uh, would say to those people, you can have the choice, rather than requiring them to suffer on in order to satisfy the morality mm. of others. The debate continues this Wednesday in Parliament. What is your sense as to where your colleagues are sitting with this bill? What is the likelihood it will be passed any time soon? So we've had... Um, three, or sorry, two of what will eventually be five committee stage debates. Uh, it's usually taking a night in Parliament to get through one of them, so there's another three to go. Uh, translation, I think, will finish that process uh, in October, and we'll have a third reading vote in November, just based on how it's going, but that can change. So far, um, members of Parliament have lined up about 70-50 in favour of the bill and making constructive changes to the bill while shooting down some of the more vexatious proposals that opponents have put up. Uh, so Look, it's a grinding process, it's a long process, um, but so far, uh, overwhelmingly, Parliament is voting for this bill to continue through. And I think that reflects that parliamentarians know that New Zealanders, uh, you know, 75% of them in TVNZ's poll, uh, have said that they actually do want this choice. Uh, and I think Parliament's starting to reflect that. Well, no doubt we will speak on the subject again soon. Thank Thanks you. for your time, David Seymour. Hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQA. You can post your comments on our Facebook page or email us at q and at tvnz.co.nz and don't forget to subscribe for the, uh, the Q&A podcast. Coming up... Promising all for your votes, and then what? Political scientist Dr Claire Robinson analyses 80 years of election campaigning. Kia ora welcome back. Prepare to be bombarded over the next year with promises from politicians wanting your vote. 
some things never change, right? But as political scientist Dr Claire Robinson discovered when compiling a history of New Zealand political campaign ads, many of those promises aren't actually kept, as Fiona Rowan found out. The thing that occurred to me flipping through your book is that there were so many promises unfulfilled. Mm, that was one of the most surprising things for me, was how many promises were repeated, election after election after election. We only look at things at each election. We don't stand back and say, why didn't we, why didn't they fulfil that promise three years ago, six years ago, 12 years ago, 20 years ago? And so we fail to really think about what the problem is, what the solutions are, and we just keep rolling forward with these unfulfilled promises. Promises, Promises is the name of Claire Robinson's book, a visual romp, she says, through 80 years of New Zealand elections, from the soft sell era of the simple party manifesto. As a voter, you could sit down and you could thumb through it and read it, and you knew what you were getting when you voted for that political party. Today, those manifestos are gone. We are voting on promises. We are voting on trust, uh, emotion, and likability, the likability of, of the party leader. Um, and no wonder we don't get delivered what we, are, what, we are, what we think we're voting for, because we're not voting for anything, actually. And you know what that's called, don't you? Yes, the iconic dancing Cossacks and communism panic gets a going over and the psychology behind notions like prosperity and economic growth. When Muldoon came along, National managed to persuade voters that Muldoon had a, actually had a bit of a clue about the economy and it was Muldoon that brought in the need to um, aspire to economic growth as one of our political goals and from that moment on economic growth became somewhat of a crusade for political parties. Prior to 1972 it wasn't. Higher living standards was the thing that political parties wanted to aim for, not economic growth. Economic growth is much more amorphous, it means nothing. Um, and it's actually easier for political parties to deliver on than higher living standards because if you're not, if your wages aren't going up every year, if you haven't got um, uh, lower prices, lower taxes, you're really going to be feeling that your living standards aren't rising. But if the if the goal is economic growth, you probably you look around, and you think, well, somebody's benefiting. I may not be feeling like I'm benefiting, but somebody is. So this is 1972 when it comes to building the house, there's only one thing they can afford to do. Dream. So this notion of the dream, the, the home being the Kiwi dream, is it's repeated in election after election after election. It is still the rhetoric that Labour uses. And that's over, over 45 years yeah, ago. Yeah, totally. And, and you can see that how we get stuck in these patterns of thinking that certain things are going to deliver the Kiwi dream to us. So we have this one, your man in Washington, your man in Pahiatua. <laughs> That's Holyoke. Yeah. Were they trying to be funny? No, they're totally, totally serious. Mr Muldoon, would you explain the new industrial law? 
Well, the Labor government... In the 1978 national ads, um, Winston Peters interviews Rob Muldoon on stage about a whole range of issues. Winston sits there in tweed, he talks to Muldoon. He's clearly been anointed as somebody that is going to have a great future with the National Party. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Colin Craig. When I was at school, we used to dream about space travel. In today's world, it's a reality. I see a nation standing upright and proud in a hard and sometimes bitter world. Forget the fear merchants and the people who want to run your life. That nice talk is not enough. I could tell you about that plan, but I'd rather show you. You have my absolute word on that. One of the remarkable things, I think, is just reflecting on the longevity of Labour and National as being the two dominant parties for all that time. When we voted in MMP in 1992, 1993, I don't think anybody expected that we'd be sitting here in 2019 in a very similar situation in terms of the, the dominance of those two political parties. So what would those two political parties, all political parties, get out of a look back on how they sold themselves to voters? Uh, what I'd quite like them to do is actually look back and say, well... Why didn't we succeed in these particular campaigns? Or why didn't we succeed with these promises? We tend to just focus on each election without looking at the historical background. And I think you need to look at the history in order to be able to understand why, why things are going wrong at the moment and what we need to be doing next. Isn't it wonderful just to dive through the archive? Fina Owen reporting there. And we're talking promises after the break. KiwiBuild was Labor's headline election policy. 100,000 houses to woo voters frustrated with an unaffordable housing market. But now the targets have gone, what's left? Kia ora, welcome back. KiwiBuild was one of Labor's signature policies heading into the last election. They promised 100,000 affordable homes would be built within 10 years. But of course, the policy in its original form has catastrophically failed. Megan Woods has been brought in as the new minister responsible for KiwiBuild. Much of the detail for the rejigged policy is yet to be confirmed, but she's scrapped all formal targets. So, with that in mind, I asked the minister how voters should hold the government accountable. Well, what we will see is more New Zealanders uh, getting the opportunity to home ownership. We'll see more New Zealanders getting into state houses. We'll see less New Zealanders living their lives in motels and more, and more New Zealanders getting into permanent housing situations. I think we all know what a successful housing picture looks like and it's not what we're currently in. So, so why this haven't you articulated that with a number? I mean, with, with respect, surely, surely you're going to come out every month and say, this is a good start, we're doing well, we're, we're going to get the official message every single month. But how do we, as the general public, look at the number of houses being produced under KiwiBuild, compare it to that 100,000 figure and say, well, actually, this is a success or this is otherwise? So another really important figure that will be in there is also what the private sector is delivering because I think one of the things when I've looked really closely at KiwiBuild is um, saying that it's very much a lever, not necessarily an outcome and I think that's one of the mistakes that we started to, to make, that we were seeing it as an outcome in and of itself. So when I drive around Christchurch, my hometown, I'm seeing billboards up for um, house and land packages for $460,000. That's below the KiwiBuild limit. One of the, th or maximum rather, that one of the things that KiwiBuild is doing is actually introducing that affordable um, housing market again, and we are seeing the private sector responding to it. This has been 
a failure, a catastrophic failure in the eyes of many, at least with that 100,000 houses goal in mind. How can a major political party, with all of the resource and all of the expertise you can draw on, be so wrong in such a critical area? Look, we still do need um, the 100-odd thousand, you're saying, the, the latest forecast. We know it's somewhere between 70 and 150,000. The, the estimates uh, vary between that. And we do need, need to deliver that many more homes for New Zealanders, and that's what we've got to concentrate on. So We have an absolute shortage of public housing in this country. We are talking about houses that people on reasonable incomes, young first-home buyers, can purchase. You promised 100,000. Let me ask this, Minister, do you want, do you want house prices to come down? What we want is people to have increased opportunities at home ownership. And we have not given up on the supply of affordable houses. But the point I made to you but that no, we need no, to no. see KiwiBuild as a lever. OK, OK. So, so if KiwiBuild is a lever, should that bring the average house price down in New Zealand? As you what increase it, supply, should that bring the average house price down? Well, what we're seeing with KiwiBuild is actually what it is doing is introducing more supply into the affordable market that I, was I know missing that. before. So, so, so with and more that supply, was a bit that, that was missing. Will that bring down the average cost of housing the, in New Zealand? What it is doing is adding more supply into the affordable sector. That was something that was really missing. So if we have a look at the Shahs and what they delivered, of the 3,100 houses that were delivered under the previous government Shahs, only, only 100 of them were deemed to be affordable. So what we weren't having was supply in the... If we just leave it to the market itself, supply without any kind of uh, programme like KiwiBuild, we weren't getting a supply of houses into that affordable end of the market. This doesn't necessarily affect all house prices, although we are seeing that there is a softening off of house prices in some places. We're not seeing falling house prices, but what we're not seeing is the, the, the bubble that was in and the, the rapid increase we were seeing. We're seeing house prices increasing more in line with wages, which I think gives more people a shot at home so ownership, do you expect, and that is our goal. Do you expect wages to increase 18% on average over the next four years? Now, what I expect us to do... Because Treasury says the, the price of housing will increase 18% nationwide. Yeah. That's the but average cost of a house look, in New Zealand. I don't think anyone's projecting an 18% wage increase so over that period of so time. So what you're saying is that housing what, is going to get more expensive relative to the average wage over the next four years, in spite, in spite of the policies that you have introduced. But what we will be doing is continuing a supply of affordable houses. And KiwiBuild is absolutely instrumental to doing that. But, Jack, the other thing that we're doing that you cannot lose sight of is the intervention we're making around opening up those opportunities of home ownership through the progressive home ownership, through the $400 million that we've allocated to that. That is going to give people who didn't have a shot at a home ownership question. a chance. You're the campaign manager for the election next year. Heading campaign into that chair. election, campaign, campaign chair. chair. You are the campaign chair heading into the election next year. When you consider the initial Kiwi Bill promise, you consider that that was a fundamental promise in Labor's campaign in the last election. Why should anyone believe Labor's big promises heading into the next election? Look, Jack, I think fundamentally people want their politicians to be honest and to have the courage when something isn't working, not to just uh, have a bloody-minded pursuit of a target because you said it um, three years ago or four years ago, but to actually call time and say, we're going to look at this and we're going to make sure it works because this is too important. New Zealanders need this and we are going to have the courage to say we need to reset it because we have to get this right. We owe it to people. Housing Minister Megan Woods. Your feedback on that and the rest of our interviews next.
Welcome back to Q&A. Thanks for your messages and feedback this evening on the government's fresh water plan. F. McCaskey tweeted, My question to Fed farmers is when did it become OK to pour pollutants into our waterways so business, i.e. farming, could make a profit? I don't recall agreeing to that trade-off. Leighton Howell emailed, I've been fly fishing across New Zealand for 30 years. Where are these dirty rivers? I'm still catching fish. I'm still fishing and seeing trout everywhere. Are you eating them, though? <laughs> and on euthanasia this evening, Alexander Douglas tweeted, I'm pro-euthanasia on the grounds that it's my life and only I have the right to end it. No one else gets to make that decision for me. We will continue the conversation and debate on our myriad social channels. That's Q&A, though. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching and nā mihi i nā karere. Thanks for your messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey, hey te rā wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.